This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 18th, 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. Anti-China sentiment is running high in the wake of COVID-19, but many of the proposed retaliations wouldn't do much for Americans. Cato's Doug Bandow and Simon Lester discuss the implications of retaliatory action on China for foreign policy and the freedom to trade. Doug, let me start with you. Um, when you say that if we could make China pay, and it's unclear what that would look like uh, practically, but what would it mean for the United States and other countries that wanted to exact some price on China for its uh, many failures in containing this uh, coronavirus? Well, there's no easy way to get money back from China. Almost all of the proposals are means that essentially would be economic warfare. The ones you hear coming out of the administration and Republicans in Congress, it's filing lawsuits, stripping China of sovereign immunity. It's wandering around the world trying to seize their assets. It's avoiding American debt held by uh, China. I mean, all of these things kind of appeal to people who hate China, but the blowback on the other end would be horrible. I mean, the best chance, I think, is to tr- number one, to work with other countries. You don't want to do this alone. It makes you know, no sense if only one country is trying to do it. And trying to find economic and international mechanisms to try to hold China reasonably accountable and look towards the future. How can you try to improve their behavior in a similar circumstance? You know, for the most part, the administration's after political effect, not economic gain. And that's the worst uh, situation you can be in for U.S.-China relations. Uh, To you, uh, Simon, does the U.S. stand alone in in having a strong desire to attempt to punish China for its failures here? Well, I think if you're talking about punishment, then probably mostly alone. Um, What what I've seen from uh, governments like Australia, uh, though, is that we, we it is important. They do think it's important to figure out what happened in, in China uh, with the emergence of this virus and make sure it doesn't happen again. And so the issue, and this is you know what Doug was alluding to, is well, how do we how do all these governments who 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 want this to happen certainly should want this to happen? How how do they work together to get China uh, to cooperate and participate in this? And that, that's that's a difficult task. You know, China is going to be reluctant to to look guilty. Um, so, so we have to approach this delicately. Delicately, it, it's it's crucial that we figure out what happens so that we don't all have to, we all don't have to go through this again. Um, but but if you if the rhetoric is all about blaming China and making China pay, we're probably not going to get very far. Um, so so it, it can't be the United States uh, acting alone. To some extent, it looks like the Trump administration wants to do it that way. I think we need to reach out to the Australians and others who have already been making the case for let's do a, a neutral, independent international investigation and, and, and work with them on that. I, I don't have great confidence the Trump administration will go along with that, but I, I, they really should. And, and Simon, you say that China should welcome some kind of investigation. Uh, is there any indication that they do? And why do you think they should welcome it? So, yeah, I, I'm not sure that they will. Um, I wrote a piece trying to convince them that they should because, you know, we're hearing talk of, of economic decoupling of, uh, you know, the Trump administration and others sort of cutting ourselves off from China. And I, I'm worried that if China uh, doesn't go along with an investigation, uh, that's where we're going to end up. 
um, either by uh, force of, of government action or just you know individuals' distrust of China. I mean, you can imagine that many people out there who are not that familiar with China, uh, the, the the main thing they'll think about when they think of China is, oh, that's where you get diseases. Um, so I think that is really bad for China, and they should want to be relatively open with this um, to assure everybody that this isn't going to happen again. We're going to do; they're going to do everything they can to make sure it doesn't happen again. So I, I think they 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 really should be reading uh, the the mood of the world a, a little better than they are. Um, so I, I I wrote something to encourage them to think about it that way. Whether they do, you know, I don't know. I don't know enough about how the Chinese government thinks. Uh, but I, I really think uh, it would be in their own interest um, to to engage cooperatively with an investigation of how this happened. Okay, uh, Doug, to you, um, you you've said that this looks like uh, this controversy in particular was heaven sent for Donald Trump. Uh, what does that mean? Well, he's in serious trouble for re-election. His major claim for re-election, which I think put him in a pretty good position, despite all of his foibles, shall we say, was an economy that seemed to be very strong, very low unemployment, even in minority communities, economic growth, new jobs. That allowed him to make the case for even those who found him offensive that he had delivered on economics. And of course, all of that's gone. And it's hard not to assess the administration's performance on dealing with the virus as being utterly blundering and uh, disastrous. Uh, no tests available, you know, these kinds of things that they should have been ready. They saw this developing in China and should have had some preparation. So to divert attention and to blame others, China's the perfect foil. Americans are understandably angry because China did, it has some responsibility, not, I think, creating the virus. But it understood that it was transmissible to human beings. It did not pass that knowledge on immediately to the rest of the world. The fact it was cracking down on citizen journalists and doctors internally, you know, these are things that had major impacts. So he's playing to kind of an open you know, field. And I think we're going to see the campaign develop where both Biden and he are trying to attack each other on China. It's very ugly. But for him, it may be his best chance for trying to win re-election. Now, uh, for Joe Biden's part, uh, at least early in this, he seemed to try to out-hawk Donald Trump on China. Uh, how productive uh, politically do you suspect that will be for him? I think it's self-defense. He doesn't expect to win a lot of Democratic votes by out-hawking Trump, but he wants to try to blunt Trump's attack. That he wants to be able to say, you know, why blame me when this is the guy who is saying Xi Jinping was a wonderful friend and they were doing all these great things? You know, so this is pure politics. We've seen it before. China periodically shows up in presidential campaigns. In 2012, Obama and Romney were attacking each other on trade with China in Ohio, primarily there, not elsewhere. You know, in the moment the campaign cleared, they, you know, the uh, it was the over for uh, Obama. He went back to his policy as normal. In a sense, Biden is vulnerable because Obama's policy towards China was pretty much as usual. He doesn't want to be tarred by that. He wants to be able to throw it back at Trump. Simon, there are moves in Congress that I recently spoke about with uh, Dan Eikenson to uh, withdraw the United States from the World Trade Organization. That seems to be a response to what is going on right now. Uh, to what extent is uh, Senator Hawley and others who are supportive of removing 
the United States from the WTO. To what extent is that aimed directly at China? I would suspect that it's largely about China. You know, when you read the Senator Hawley op-ed, um, it's a little bit, uh, it's a little bit messy, it's a little unclear uh, what all of his considerations are. Uh, but clearly, a crucial aspect of this is China, and I, I think to a great extent, people have misunderstood uh, China's role in the WTO and, and what that's done for the the, the Chinese economy. Um, people seem to think that it was China's entry into the WTO that, that made it what it is. But that's not really that's not really the case. China was was growing economically even before it applied to join uh, the WTO's predecessor, the GATT. Um, China's growth period started long before the WTO. What the WTO, what China's entry into the WTO did uh, was was force China to liberalize a bit. China had to make some big concessions to get in there. And if we kick China out or if we withdraw from the WTO and start our own organization without China, what we're likely to see is more trade barriers from China, less intellectual property protection. So the, the things that people are complaining about with regard to China are all better with China in the WTO and be worse if we withdrew from the WTO. So I think there's uh, some basic misunderstandings and then also just some emotional nationalism that are playing into um, Senator Hawley and others who, who are making these calls. I mean, if they, in Senator Hawley's op-ed, he's talking about the, the, the Chinese theft of intellectual property protection. And he says, we should go back to what we had before the WTO. But before the WTO, we didn't have international rules uh, on intellectual property protection as part of the trade regime. So it just, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, so I, I think it is just sort of an I'm mad at China and let me do something that 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 expresses that as opposed to a, a, a considered policy that that might help improve trade relations with China or, or provide further disciplines on, on China's uh, protectionism. So we've seen a, a president that for the first three years of his term broke supply chains, uh, antagonized trading partners. Uh, and uh, otherwise was uh, not doing was doing some pretty destructive policy with with respect to trade. Uh, he didn't really have to pay for it. Now with this uh, outbreak, uh, we're seeing a dramatic reduction globally in economic activity. And uh, with what would a withdrawal from the WTO mean uh, for the U.S. economy? You know, ten years down the road. Right. I mean, practically speaking, if the United States withdrew from the WTO, which, you know, let me just clarify, I think that's unlikely. I don't think this is going forward. Uh, but let's just, uh, you know, assume for the sake of argument that it did. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that others would withdraw from the WTO. I mean, maybe that would be the goal is the, the United States is going to bring the Europeans, and the Canadians and the Japanese with them. But I don't think that's likely. So that would mean the United States further isolates itself. Um, that means everybody's trading with each other. And we are putting up barriers to trade with all of them. So, you know, there's this argument about whether America first means America alone. Um, if the United States withdraws from the WTO, America is going to feel very alone. Uh, you know, at, at any time, this would be a bad idea. In the midst of a global economic crisis, it seems like an even worse idea. Um, but I don't want to give this you know, too much airplay because I don't think this is really going to happen. But if you're going to put that on the table, um, you know, it's, it's, this is a disaster for the U.S. economy and for ordinary average Americans uh, of all kinds. OK, Doug, uh, to the extent that Joe Biden would like to strike a conciliatory tone and still appear to be someone who's taking uh, China's role in this very seriously, 
what are the things that that he ought to be saying or you know any challenger to uh, the current president well the focus for the biden campaign should be that not only is you know the president kind of unpleasant to, to, to put it mildly in the way he deals with people but that the administration botched its handling of covid-19 and to me that if i was biden i'd want that to be central that if there's one thing a president of the United States and an administration should be prepared for and should be capable of dealing with, it would be a pandemic that uh, this administration failed at that and therefore we need a change. I think the political answer for him in a sense is you attack on China and then you forget it the moment you're elected and you privately tell the Chinese, don't worry about it. This is all politics and we have some issues we're going to want to go over with you. But the, you know, this nasty stuff really isn't going to carry forward. In fact, I wrote an article kind of suggesting that, that if the Chinese should take that into account, my concern is our relationship is very bad for a lot of reasons. And uh, the danger in the campaign is driving it down in a very dangerous way, especially if you see a, a major effort to decouple economically. If you sever that relationship and have bad relations over human rights, security issues, other sorts of things, you know, we could find ourselves in a fairly dangerous situation, which would be nerve wracking, not only for us, but also for friends in Asia who don't want to see a conflict between the U.S. and China. None of them, even though most of them favor the U.S. for lots of good reasons, none of them want to be in between the two because you know, China's right there and it's not going away. Doug Bandau is a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Simon Lester is a trade policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you please and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.